Somebody, somebody asked me earlier this week, why, Nehemiah, why did you choose for us to go through the book of Nehemiah? Was that just because we were having a building project or was there some other reason? I've joked along the way that it's written somewhere. I'm not even sure where, but it must be written somewhere that any time a church is building something, they have to go through the book of Nehemiah. Well, because Nehemiah was building something, right? Well, sort of. Actually, God is building something in the book of Nehemiah, and it's not the wall. And so one of the things about considering Nehemiah in the midst of a building program is because we don't want to be distracted as if the ministry of the church, the work of the church, is all about a building project any more than the work of Israel was all about a wall. It was not. God is using the building of a wall, which is finished in chapter 6. We should be done with Nehemiah if that was the case. But it's more than that, isn't it? That God is using the building of the wall to build his people. To build his people for the purpose that he has given them, which is to represent him and to show his mercy and his grace to everyone around them especially all the other nations of the world. And Israel sometimes did that well. Israel often didn't do that so well at all. But that's the whole purpose of the temple. The temple isn't God has so many rules about who can approach him that you got to go through all this stuff. And there's all these requirements and sacrifice and everything else. And God is just, God is so into the requirements and the details. That's really not it at all. The purpose of the temple in every sacrifice is to play out God's story that would culminate in his own son given as the once for all sacrifice for sin in eternal human life in the place of all humanity, him in our place for the removal, for the forgiveness, for the settlement of humanity's sin, guilt, rebellion, from the garden until now and even tomorrow. That each sacrifice is, is intended to portray the reality of sin and its resultant death and all the ugliness of that to remind us of that until Jesus comes for the removal of, of, of sin. And then we look back. We even use this table to look back to an offering, one whose death provides freedom into new life. That's what our Savior has done for us. And so Israel's purpose in all of that with the sacrifices and that worship, that unique worship, different from the worship of all the other peoples of the earth at the time then or now, in that God, look what God has done for us, all pointing to him. And in that sense, the purpose of the church today is the same. That the, the, the center of everything we do ought to be the gospel of Jesus, ought to be the story of God in his love and redemption. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so, as in Nehemiah, God is building up his people to, as a people called Israel, to portray that story to everyone else around them. So God is building up his church through whatever means he gives us. And sometimes there's, there's challenges that we face. There's needs that arise. There's, there's the building of space for the building of lives. It, it takes rooms and spaces to do that. 
and old spaces wear out and must be replaced. But the purpose of all that is not to have a new building. The purpose of that is to have a place where we'll continue to do that work that God has given us. And so we need to, if, if we're even going to start thinking about new space, we need to be real clear on what is the word, what is the purpose that God has given us as we serve him in worship. Uh, this last week, last Sunday, we had, a, we had a wonderful time in God's word and in worship. As we kind of rehearsed the story of Israel, marching around those walls, look what God has done. And as they marched on those walls, which were very different from, from before when the walls tumbled down and they were taken away into exile, now God has restored them. And in the restoration of the walls, there's a celebration of the restoration of them, the new identity that God has given them again as his people, to, to stand on what God has done for them, that they would there declare his praise and his glory and let everybody around them hear it. And that's what happened. And yet, in Israel's history, and in yours, it doesn't always stay that way, does it? There are times in your life when you walk with the Lord where your heart was centered in worship, drawn to your Lord in ineffable ways, indescribable ways. And yet, there's, 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 there's times when, oh... Another song would be more fitting, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the Lord I love. How do we keep worship real, genuine, wholehearted, authentic? Well, tucked in between a time when Israel's worship in the days of Nehemiah was authentic and real, and sometimes when it wasn't. Tucked in between there is this little hinge passage that describes three facets of Israel's worship. And I think if we're careful about these three, it'll help us to keep worship real. To keep our worship real as a church, to keep our worship individually real as well. So as I read from, from, from Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 44... We're going to see things, three ways where this plays out. Yes, it relates to generous giving. It relates to faithful serving. It relates to obedient living. And so we'll talk about each one of those. But first, let's read just the uh, story as it's described here in Nehemiah chapter 12 from verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. Clean out the storerooms. Get ready for what's coming because God's people's hearts are overflowing and giving. Look at the end of verse 44. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who were ministered. And, they, and the, they, the priests and Levites, performed the service of their God. Or maybe we should read that they as all of them together. Judah and the priests and Levites performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were direct, directors of the singers. There were, and, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel both in the days of Zerubbabel 
and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. And on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they responded. They separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. All right, three different aspects. There is generous giving. There is faithful serving. There is an obedient response in life. First of all, generous giving. How do we keep our worship real? By putting our money where our mouth is. By stepping into, with our own resources, at some cost, to that which we declare in praise with our mouth. They opened up storerooms because God's people's hearts were there and overflowing in giving. Offerings are coming. Clean out the storerooms. Now, giving begins with what God has given. That's, that's contrary to the model that's often seen in various TV ministries today where somebody is telling you, send in your checks, send in some seed money of faith, and then wait and see, and God is going to richly, abundantly bless you in return. Biblical giving is a response to what God has already done. Faith in God and how he has provided and so then confidence in how he will continue to provide for me that I'm merely a steward of what God has set in my hands. Um, To get an understanding, oftentimes we think about the requirements of the law in terms of giving for Israel as this strict requirement that you better do this, don't miss something on the list, measure up in all these ways or else God is going to be angry. But let's look at the original instruction just before Israel enters into the land that God is going to give them. Just before they cross over Jordan, just before they surround Jericho and the walls come tumbling down, Moses, in his last words to Israel, he describes it this way in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy 26, I'm going to read the 11 verses because I want you to see in here that this is a response. The tithes, the offerings, the free will offerings, the first fruits, this is a response of what God has done for them. It's not a requirement, do this and then I will bless you. It's in recognition of what God has done for you, respond in this way. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place where the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. I am doing this based on what God has said and has done for us and for me. And the priest will take the basket from your hand, but it's not for him. He will set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. This is a gift that I give to the Lord. 
and you shall make response before the Lord your God. This is a little liturgy. This is a little recitation that they're to declare when they come and bring their offering. Again, it's not about the money. It's about what has God done within the heart. This is what you to say. A wandering Aramean or Aramean was my father, named Jacob. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm with great deeds of terror. There's the Passover. With signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold now, because of all of this, because of God's great redemption, that we were dead in trespasses and sins, and God raised us up, that we, he made us alive together in Christ. By God's grace, we have been saved, and he has brought us into a new land, an abundant life. He has given us a new life in Christ, lived by the power of his Holy Spirit within us, and in light of all of this that God has done. Now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given to me. This, this is your working anyway. You've done all of this. I didn't do any of this. And so the fruit of the ground from trees that were already planted, fields that were already sown, I bring from what you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good the Lord your God has given to you and, and to your house, your family, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. You see, they're giving, the first fruits, the offerings, the tithes, all of that, their giving was in response to God's redemption, God's abundant new life, God's providing for them. It's not cutting a deal to, to um, invest in God and he will then reap rich returns. It's because of what is God, God has done for us in redemption to new life that we would give that which God has given to us back to him. And what the people are, are doing, they're doing what God has told them to do, what God has said to do, and they do this then to give to the Levites, and the Levites then take a tithe out of that to support the priest so that for the Levites and the priests, and that includes all the singers and the gatekeeper and everybody involved in the various aspects of temple worship and in the Levitical ministries of teaching God's word to the people back in all the towns and villages, all of that through the people's free giving to God out of what God has provided for them and blessed them with, out of what he has set into their hands as a stewardship for them to manage on his behalf. So there is this pattern of people giving back to the Lord. And the Levites and the priests, they are simply an opportunity, a reason. The whole system, as God has set it up, is a reason, is an opportunity for them to give of themselves to God. The building of the wall was an opportunity for these people to pull together, to shoulder a, a task, task that was beyond them together to look what God will do through us. I remember years ago when we were in what some would call partnership discovery. 
or missionary support raising. We were on our way to Africa to a place called Swaziland that you've probably never heard of. In fact, it's been renamed since then. But, but as we are getting ready to go and seeing God's provision for us, I realized along the way that people were not giving to Bob and Julie as cute as they were. And those three at the time, little children that we had, as adorable as they were, people were not giving to us. We were actually just another reason, an opportunity for people to give of themselves to God. That's the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 3 to 5. He's describing the poor of Macedonia. He's using it as an example to encourage the much more wealthy Corinthian church to join in this because look what your brothers and sisters with little in their hands have done. For they gave according to their means, I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I, I memorized that verse in another translation. It has a slightly different ring to it. They gave themselves first to God and then to us by the will of God. I just love the way that just fits together in my head. That as we give ourselves to God, then what we have goes wherever God would direct us to send it. That we as missionaries, being supported by many, were simply a reason for those many to give something of themselves to God. And so that continues today. They gave themselves, they gave their tithe, their, their free will offerings, they gave first fruit offerings. The first fruit offering was an offering of faith that here you are, let's, let's put it in Washington terms, let's think about an apple orchard, Okay. There you are, and early in the season, when apples are just getting ripe, and people have had cold storage apples, but they haven't had a fresh apple off the tree in months, a lot of months, and your apples have come in early. You were at a place in the valley that your apples are coming in, and the first one's ready to be picked off the tree. Oh, you take those to market, and you're going to get a, a prime price for those apples, aren't you? Because they're the first of the new season. They're the first fresh apples to hit the street in months. Everybody wants them. But those first fruits of the apple orchard, you are going to bring instead and devote to God. The Levites, the priests, the singers get to eat those apples. You're going to give them to God. And why are you doing that? You're saying, Lord, all that I have is what you have given me. This whole new life, including the apple orchard, you gave that to me. And I trust you with the rest of the harvest. I will give the first fruits of this harvest to you because I trust you for the rest of it. I trust you with me. So it's out of faith, trusting God and his future, that we give anything at all. In fact, that idea of first fruits, that's in our salvation. Jesus Christ, in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Christ has been raised, the first fruits, afterward those who belong to Jesus at his coming. We believe in his resurrection. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead and we are in Christ, so we also will be raised out of death as well. That is our confidence. That is our hope. And so as they give, 
Their giving directly supports what's happening at that temple. It supports the singing. It supports the sacrifices. It supports all that the Levites and the priests do. And that means that work is not just the work of the Levites and the priests. That work, everything that happens, that sacrifice, that day of atonement that so manifests the removal of guilt and sin from the people, placed on a substitute, taken away, never to return. Every sacrifice that portrays Jesus is the ministry now, is the work of all of Israel, not just a few. And that's important. That generous giving, putting our own money where our mouth is, devoting our resources to God's purpose, is important for the faithful serving. It gets us into the game as well. Oh, getting to the game. Today's the big day. Today is the big game, right? Have you got plans for your party today? You're going to gather around TV? You're going to watch football this afternoon? Because today's the big game. Some of you are shaking your heads. Say, no, no, no. What, you think it's next week? Today, folks, today is the Pro Bowl. This is like the biggest game of the season, isn't it? I mean, you have all of the best stars from all the teams. They all get together, and they, they, they make this hardship tour. They get on a plane. They fly somewhere far away, like Hawaii or someplace. And there they're going to put on a spectacular of the best players, the best stars of the game. And it's completely meaningless, isn't it? This game matters not at all. And they will not play at full speed. I'm not for injuries in sports, but there won't be any. They're going, to be, they're going to try to be as careful as they can because the game doesn't mean anything. A preseason game means more than the Pro Bowl. Do you know why? Because a preseason game matters for the rest of the season. That's where you find out who you've got in the draft and who you have in walk-ons that are going to form this team because the, the team through the whole season is not just the stars, not, not just those, those all-stars and pro bowlers. The team is everybody together. And it was in 2012 in the preseason games that the Seattle Seahawks took a fresh look at somebody they had drafted in the third round, another quarterback who would just be somebody to push the existing quarterbacks on their roster a little bit, following that mantra as we compete in every position. And certainly a, a third rounder is going to be a backup at best, but he will push those other quarterbacks a little bit. And it was in the preseason games that don't really matter, everybody says. That's where they discovered what they had in somebody called Russell Wilson. And it changed everything for several years in the Seahawks. I, I, I say that not to talk about Seahawks, but to say that, that oftentimes we think about ministry that God's church does in the world today in terms of Pro Bowl, and we should think about it in terms of preseason. We think of it in terms of all-stars, the most visible people on YouTube and so on, and we should be thinking it as the whole team together. Uh, Jesus talks about his body, the church, as that by functioning and growing and being built up by that which every part supplies, working together for the building up of the body in love. That's how we need to think of the church. A faithful serving all together that makes the reality. And that's what happens. The priests and the Levites, they're performing their task. And they're not just doing it willy-nilly however they want. They've got a heritage to walk in. 
God has laid out over time. And, and memories fade and people come up with new ideas. And why don't we just worship God in our own way and this way? And yet there are some, there are some boundaries in that. There's some ways that God has laid out that worship me this way. Is God just picky? Is God just fussy? Is God just stuck in his rut? Or is it a matter of will we believe God and trust God such that we do what he says even when it comes to worship? That's what's going on here. They're careful to worship God on God's terms. So that as they do this, and as they do this, connected with that generous giving of all of Israel, so that the priests and the Levites then do their appointed parts as part of the whole of the nation, the work of ministry, the ministry of the temple becomes the work of all of God's people together. So that all of Israel shares in the priest's work, showing God's forgiveness, walking in his covenant, just as the priests supported the building of the walls, so the rest of the nation supports the work of the priests at the temple. Now, if we were to apply that into the church, what does that mean? It means that as you participate together in God's family, by your giving and by your serving, as you serve in this role or that, that serving together by that which every part supplies, then God is using you in all that his church does. Let me try to quantify that a little bit. God uses you and your voice in helping hearts be lifted up in praise this morning. God uses you in coming alongside a family or a person in need. Maybe God used you individually this morning to do just that. Maybe God used you specifically individually yesterday to do that. But together as a church, God uses you to do that. God uses you in the discipling of men and women. God uses you in the counseling and assisting of somebody who's under spiritual attack. Even if you're not the one doing the direct assisting and counseling, God is using you as part of his body to do that. God is using you. Watch this one. God is using you to share the gospel of his grace by radio and internet into some of the hardest to reach places in the Middle East through our partnership in the ministry of John and Carol Ragsdale. God is using you similarly to share God's grace with Syrian refugees in Jordan. God is using you to teach others his word. God is using you to care for young ones, even in the nursery. God is using you to, yes, even build classrooms and other spaces where kids and adults are going to continue to be taught God's word in future generations. A generous giving, faithful serving are two specific ways that God uses you and I together as his church when we respond in obedience to what it is that God has called us to do. And that's the third move. That brings us into chapter 13 as we read those last few verses, which are kind of odd about those people from Moab and Ammon. Let me give you the background to that quotation, which comes out of Deuteronomy 23, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, 
They didn't help them on their way when Israel came peaceably and had no intention of taking any of their land. We are just a passing through. We're just stay on the main roads. Can you just supply us with some water and bread along the way? We'll pay for, the, we'll pay for what we take. And they said no, and they met them with soldiers instead. And they, they actually hired a, a prophet named Balaam who was not an Israelite. He was a seer. And they hired Balaam in, in, the, in the book of Numbers to actually pronounce a curse because they knew that Balaam was somebody that was tied to God. He heard from God. He could speak prophetically. So if Balaam would curse Israel, then God would do it. And so the king of Moab pays off Balaam. And Balaam wants to do it because this is a good gig. There's a good paycheck in it for him. He doesn't really care about these Israelite people, but he's, he, he, he's got a clause in his contract that says, you know, I can only say what God allows me to say. Wink, nod. I hope God will let me curse them for you. And so they, he sets out and, and comes to a place where he overlooks all of Israel and he tries to curse them and God gives him a blessing instead. So the king of Moab says, well, that didn't work out. Well, let's, let's try a different place. It was probably the place. Let's go to a different place. They do that. They go to a different place. They go to a different place. Over and over again, he tries to curse them, and God pronounces a blessing on them instead. God tells through Balaam what it is that he's going to do for Israel. And the king of Moab is so insane. He said, I'm not going to pay you anything, buddy. I brought you here to curse them, and you bless them instead. But because of that, now what Balaam does do is he, he gives the king of Moab, some insight. Listen, God has promised to bless them, but you want to mess that up. You need to mess up their relationship with their God. You need to get them to follow your gods instead. You need to get them to be unfaithful in their obedience to God. And then their own God will deal with them because he's a holy God. And that's what happened. And it did cause heartache and trouble for God's people at the end of the book of Numbers. So then, out of that, there is this decree from God that no Moabite or Ammonite will enter into the Lord's presence. But wait a minute. Does that mean that, that God has a, because God is vindictive, that God just has a vendetta against these groups of people that none of them will ever be saved? That's not the point at all. Have you ever heard of a woman named Ruth? Also known in your Bibles as Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth also had a sister her sister chose to go back to her people and her gods, but Ruth made a declaration of faith. Ruth said, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth joined herself. Ruth saw herself as no longer a Moabitess. Ruth joined herself to the people of Israel, and thus in, under their covenant to their God. And Ruth becomes the grandmother of David. It's through Ruth that Jesus himself is born according to the flesh. So this is not a just a complete exclusion of the people of Moab, but it's a marking out that the, the way to God is the way that he has made it. And ultimately that will be in Jesus, who also sounds very exclusive when, he, when the apostles say that there is no other name given under heaven among men, whereby you might be saved. When Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. That sounds very exclusive. In fact, it's, it's a bit intolerant. You could say that God is a bit intolerant. 
But he has provided the only way that could be provided. And he doesn't want anybody to be fooled by a cheap substitute. Now, obedient living, as seen in this chapter, I've, I've, I've sidetracked you a little bit with the whole Moab thing. But the obedient living is they heard on that day in verse 13, or chapter 13 and verse 1, they read from the book of Moses, and they read that part about Ammonites and Moabites. And so, verse 3, as soon as they heard, they stepped into it. How do you keep worship real? How do you keep your own worship and spiritual life with God real? Not just pretending, not cooled off, but growing. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways is to continue in, to invest in the things of God. Do you remember when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also? Just don't waste your time investing in places where it can't last, where, where, where rust and moth will destroy, where thieves will break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where there is no rust. And, little side note, in heaven there will be no moths. We know that because where there are no rust and no moths and there are no thieves, the thieves will not break in and steal. Because, he says, and this is the point I want you to grab hold of here, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I mentioned, before, I mentioned already some of the missionaries that our church supports. They're all wonderful. Some of them are especially wonderful to Julie and I. Because we personally, along with our church giving, we personally support those particular missionaries. We can't do that with all of them if we're going to do significant things for some of them. But some of them we have, God has directed us to, to partner with individually as well. And, and we find our hearts linked to them. We are interested in what's going on. We, we follow up with them personally. We pray for them because some of our treasure has gone there. And our hearts are directed there also. You want your, your heart to just... Have you ever... At times, I want my heart to be a little more heavenly affected. I want to live a little more in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. We'll send something there ahead, and your heart will follow. That's what Jesus says. Where you send your treasure, your heart will be also. Where you participate in serving, where you invest your blood, sweat, and tears, there your heart will be as well. Participate, step into, get into the game as the whole team together. And keeping worship real involves in when you hear from God in His Word. The most dangerous, one of the most dangerous times and also one of the most potentially fruitful times spiritually for you is in your own personal devotional time with the Lord. Opening up His Word and prayerfully reading it. You can imagine how that should be a spiritually fruitful time, but it also can be a spiritually dangerous time. Because what if you open God's Word and you're reading it and you know God is speaking to you somewhere there? You know there's something there that he would have you to do in response. And yet you close the book and go on with your day and do nothing with it. That's a terribly dangerous place to be.
It's a terribly dangerous way to start your day because you, you harden your heart. You, you dull your spiritual hearing so that it may become over time harder to even hear from and respond to God from his word. You want to sharpen your spiritual life instead? You want to keep your own personal worship and walk with the Lord real? Then when he speaks to you from his word, do what they did. As soon as, determine, Lord, what would you have me to do? And take the next step into it. I am not giving you a whole list of all the kind of things you need to be careful to be obedient about. Not at all. But when God leads you, when God directs you, and it may be an area of giving. It may be an area of serving. It may be an area of your own personal walk and obedience, a habit that you need to stop or start. But when God clearly speaks to you, as soon as, step into it. And that will, that will enliven, that will deepen, that will open your spiritual walk. We're going to go out this morning by singing together. Singing in prayer, you could say, a pretty bold declaration. I will follow you. That's a strong statement. Will we? Really? In what way? It's important, isn't it? In what way? What has God told me to do that in this way I will follow you? Because surely this song is about taking a next step to follow God in obedient living. It may be a song about following the Lord in generous giving. It may be a song about following the Lord in faithful serving. We want to each be able to sing this song for real, really meaning it. We want, together, and for each one of us, to keep our worship real. So let's pray. Lord, give us your grace to follow you. Lord, Free us, Lord, from anything that holds us back, any, any false confidence in ourselves or a lack of trust in you that, that holds us back from how we give. Lord, um, free us to be willing in some way to know that this is a place where I give myself away to serve others for the ministry of the body of Christ. And Lord, would you soften our, our ears to hear would you clear our mind to understand? Would you work in the willingness of our heart, Lord, to follow you in obedience to that thing that you show us? Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory so that people around us might see something of your grace, of your new life in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.